All right, welcome to the Tina Talks podcast. Hashtag stay naked. Hashtag stay naked. Uh, today we're going to interview. Let me say stay naked in Spanish. Encuerada. Encuerada. Encuero. Oh, that's a good one. I just thought about like how do you say that hashtag in Spanish? Desnuda. Desnuda y al destape. Al destape destapada. Desnuda. Yeah. Desnuda. That means nude Thank yourself. You. The name nude. Desnuda. Yeah. Very cool. I love it. Yes. So yes. today we're gonna stay <laughs> naked. We're gonna get naked, raw, and honest with Alicia. Ooh. Um. I've always wanted to t- talk about this with you because yeah. I don't think most people realize how you and I first met. We kind of couldn't like really vibe. Um, and I want to share with you probably what the majority of people think when they first meet you. And then yeah. I want you to tell me what people <laughs> think when they first meet oh, me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and there's a lot that's intriguing about your life. That is really, really good, really good. So I want to ask all the questions okay. that most people who don't truly know you yeah, I have about okay. you. Awesome. Cool. I love it. So, um, first of all, the topic is when you look like you don't belong. Yep. You say you experienced that quite oh, a bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. So talk to me about what that means. Yeah, you know, it's just being in places, locations where you just look like you're not from there, you don't belong. I've been all over the world, and one really particular incident was a birthday party that we went to for my husband's family in Czechoslovakia. Everyone was super white. I come in, and I'm very brown. (laughs) And literally, everybody stopped what they were doing in that room, in that reception room, and just turned around to look at me. Wow. And I could tell I didn't belong. I felt it. I felt it. And according to Russ, it's just like you were just different. They just weren't used to seeing somebody like you because they're from a little country. They're from the countryside. They're not necessarily, well, no, they weren't even from the countryside. They're pretty highly educated people, actually. But they were just not used to seeing someone like you. So it's kind of funny. You know, and I felt it. I felt it immediately walking into that room. So that to me, and I've been to so many other things, like even networking in Houston with a lot of ladies who are not, who are like socialites quote-unquote socialites I've been in their circles because I, I I like to be in circles that I'm not quite I, I guess comfortable in just because I feel like I need to be there so I can learn from them and see how they live life too and how they behave and then I'll go home and be like okay I'm never doing that again so there's two aspects <laughs> yes of not looking like you belong one, it's the brown girl aspect, but yeah. two, it's the lifestyle aspect. So I'd like to go back and start from the beginning. Yeah. Where are you from? Tell me about your heritage and how you grew yeah. up. You know what? I grew up in the most fun neighborhood in the north side, right next to downtown Houston. It's uh, considered the the east, east north side, I guess, really close to downtown. Um was born at Jefferson Davis Hospital. My parents are both, uh, well, my daddy's from Harlingen. He was he was born in Harlingen, and my mommy's from Monterrey. So they met in Monterrey, and then I came over here, and I learned to, well, actually, they were they were both here when I was born. I was born um, in 75. And I remember my neighborhood with the most amazing memories, even though it was a very poor, very um, crime-ridden neighborhood back then, even in the 80s. In 90s, it was a really fun place to just hang out and have a good time. 
Were you aware at that time that you were in a quote-unquote ghetto? I knew it because I actually grew up next to a bar. And so there was music playing all the time. There were borrachos, drunks, walking out, acting crazy. I knew it. I knew back then. And my daddy would say, you know, just like, uh, you know, just like, you know, ignore them. Ignore them. Like, it's fine. It's no big deal. I'm fascinated by the relationship with your father. We yeah. often reminisce about, like, seeing corridos with our dads and that sort of thing. Tell me about that. You know what? We really kept the really... Um, open cultural traditional um, family man it was really really fun we were folklorico dancers since we were little and that was something my mom always wanted for her kids so the minute she found a group she put us in there and then it was like non-stop so she became like the momager and my dad became the driver you know he was like driving us everywhere for practice or for you know uh, dance whatever recitals or performances and so then me and my sister joined and then my two little brothers joined and then it was like the whole family was going everywhere as dancers but you know traditionally it was very traditional it was very um beautiful it was very loving I can't say that I had a tough you know a tough childhood even though we were poor we were always well taken care of my mom stayed home and she took care of us she made a home for us um, and she devoted her life to us, by the way. She never worked. She never wanted to work. She wanted to be a mom her whole life, which is very interesting. Now that I'm a mom, I'm very much not like her. I like to work. I want to be out and about. By the way, I think that poverty is a mentality, right? I grew up, um, and I and now I'm told, like, oh, you went to a ghetto high school because I went to North Shore. Hashtag the show. Um yeah, people are like, oh, you went to yeah. ghetto high school. You went to the ghetto part of town, or I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. You know, it's more of a mentality, really. Yeah. I think poverty and wealth is really a matter of mentality. It's not even, you know, the, the, the numbers you have in your bank account. Yeah, and I discovered that as I grew older, and as I married and my husband became successful, I discovered that mentality needed to be broken because I did grow up with a poverty mentality. As you married and you both. Yeah, we both became, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I tend to say him because he was the one that really pushed the business, but I was at home taking care of a lot of things too. And I was educated. I was doing my thing, you know, I was doing my thing. But at the same time, I was always that support system for him for 15, 16 years. So, which is awesome because now he's retired. Yeah. You're going full force on your business and he's completely supportive. And so supportive because he knows that I was there for him full force when he needed me to be there, you know? So then let's fast forward to how you and Rusk meet in the most of unconventional ways. Well, you know what? We were both college students. I was in grad school. Uh, he was good friends with my sister. So he was in the circle, I guess, of friends. Um, and then one, one night we were all went out together and I wasn't going to go out because I was heartbroken. I had been with the, I had been in a pseudo relationship and I was very heartbroken. I told my sister, I'm not going to this thing. She's like, you need to get out. You need to get your mind off of whoever that is. Get out there and you need to just go. And my daddy came along and we were all sitting down and I, and, and I opened the door and the first person that opens the door for me is him, is Russ, my husband. And uh, and he opens the door. And he goes, "I know you. I know who you are. You're Martha's sister." And I'm like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Who are you?" He goes, "I know Alicia. I know who the hell are you?" I said that. I'm like, "Who are you?" And I just kind of like looked away. Like this guy's like a stalker. No, but he goes, "I know everything about you." Oh, he was like very, very blunt. Like I know everything about you. Your sister has told me everything about you. 
And then I'm, I'm like my sister, and so I asked her. She goes, "Oh yeah, he's you know he's a friend I talk to, but everybody." Like, Why didn't you ever hook me up? She's like, "You never wanted to be with a white guy, and he's white." So intriguing. <laughs> so a couple of things. The reason I said, but if you ask Russ, he will say he's not white. <laughs> he's multiracial. Which he, is. he is. You know, he he he's very proud of being an Arab and being a Czech. Very I'll tell cool. you that. And he speaks Czech, by the way. So he's, he has a third language. So let me ask you this, because I did mention that you met yeah. him in the most unconventional of ways, uh-huh. because it was your father yes. who actually encouraged you yes, he did. To, to pursue <laughs> a relationship with Rask. And girls don't grow up with their daddy being, like, giving that advice. No, no, but I did. See, my dad was very in tune with who I was as a young girl. And so he said, you you tend to be very bitchy and opinionated, so you need a guy who can put up with you. Uh, the guys you're dating right now will not put up with your ass. And I was like, okay, so then what do I do? Because you just need to see outside of what you're used to. You need to look outside of who you're dating. Because I was dating professional guys, but they always, said, they always had an issue with me being so opinionated. They always said, you don't really have to tell everybody what you're thinking all the time. How did you take that from your father? <laughs> For my daddy, like, it was great. I'm like, I could be free. I could be myself. Like, who gives a shit? Would you have taken it the same way you think if your mom had provided my mom the same. My mom said the same thing. But I would listen to him more because I wanted the men's point of view all the time. Because I was always conflicted. Like, I wanted to be... I wanted to be that girl that was always giving, generous. But I always had a fucking opinion. I always had something to say. So I was always like giving and loving with my men and my boyfriends. And I was a good, good girlfriend. But at the same time, they always had an issue with, okay, why are you going back to school? Like when I went to grad school, my boyfriend was like, why are you going back? You don't need to go back. Let's get married. Or, you know, um, why do you want to travel? You know, I would save my money, Ariana. Just my my dad would go and sell parts from like, you know, uh, uh, washers and dryers so that I could go on a trip for school. He would come home with like $50 and we would put it in like a little bucket. $50, $10. My mom would sell her pochas, like her blankets, and she would put money in the little cup. And she would say, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, so that I could go to a, to a trip. Because they they, everybody knew I needed I wanted to travel so bad. It's so awesome. I think I wanted to get out of the neighborhood, too. I felt very, very conflicted being in that neighborhood. Because I knew that if I married somebody in the neighborhood, I was going to stay in the neighborhood. And that to me was like a death sentence. I would go to sleep at night just being so fearful that I was going to stay in that place, that I was not going to get out of that place. So when the opportunity came about for me to, for us to move to Spring Branch, I got my first job as a teacher. I put in, I found a mortgage broker and I said, we're going to buy a house. We're leaving the neighborhood. We can't stay here. This is not for us. Because we were suffocating, my sister and I. We were both graduating from college. We were, you know doing our thing and we felt like we can't we're, we're suffocating you outgrew we, the hood. we outgrew it and it's not that it wasn't a beautiful place it was a great place it just wasn't for us it we had aspirations for a little for two girls from the north side to aspire to do more and my parents saw that and they knew whatever we needed to do to get you girls moving and forward and forward and forward and that's why my daddy always said you cannot marry somebody who's going to keep you at that level you are. You have to marry somebody who's going to take you to the next level, who's going to it push you even further. Sounds just like the advice Maybe. I get from my father. Oh he my tells God. me the same you thing all the time. You and I have a lot of that similar 
upbringing, I think, in terms of how the men in our life impacted who we became. So there's a couple of things that I want to touch on with everything you just said. One, how beautiful that the family unit came together to empower and encourage the women. Yes. You and your sister, sure. right? Two, I think it's so amazing how you and I are both attracted to very strong men. Because yeah. the very first thing that Russ, your future husband, tells you when you meet him for yeah. the first time is, I know who you are and I know everything about you. I mean, that was him taking command. Very bold. He's always been very bold. And you like a man who takes command. I do. I really, really do because I like a man who will stand up to me too, who will say, hey, I think you're going a little too far. Like men, men, like I want a fucking guy that can be like, you know what? I love what you're doing. I'm going to freaking be there for you. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to push you. But I also want somebody who says, hey, you know, sometimes you don't have to go that far. Sometimes you don't have to do all (laughs) that. As my mom would say, bajale de huevos. Yeah, you know? (laughs) And keeps it real for me because I'm very dramatic, Ariana. I'm the, I'm the biggest drama queen. See, I don't take you for a drama queen. I take you for an assertive woman who knows what she wants and she has high expectations and demands. Yeah, well, that's another way. <laughs> but you're not one to create drama. I don't no, I don't create way. drama. I never create drama because I think drama is just it sucks the life out of you. But I mean, in a dramatic in terms of when I really want something, I'm very passionate about it. Right. And I, fucking go headstrong about something. I love that about you. And that's who you are as well. I can tell that about you too. So the other part of attraction that we have for each other. It is. And I want to talk about how you and I first met here a little bit. The other thing I wanted to touch on is you said something that was very key. Mm -hmm. You said you were in pseudo relationships. And I get why you say that, right? Because I don't know what a real relationship looks like. That was never the real thing. No. And so there's this thing that we as strong women experience where it's like, hey, baby, I love yeah. you, girl, the way you are. But if you could just hold back certain parts of you, yes. you feel comfortable to make up for my own yes. insecurities. Yeah. So the solution there, ladies, is if you're a strong, confident, bomb-ass woman, you need to find a bomb-ass, confident, amazing man who's not only going to support what you're doing, but he's going to love the fact that you're passionate about life and he's going to support your mission and he's going to glow like with yeah. you doing you and so the only way you're going to attract that in your life and i'm going to talk about this on the next episode yes. is yes. by doing the number one thing that makes men fall in love with women i agree because what happens is you end up being like a little flower that just wilts and i used to see myself as a bird in the cage and I used to tell these ex-boyfriends that you can't keep me in the cage. I'm not that kind of bird. And I know you want me to stay in there because you want me to maintain this innocence, this um, ladylike quality, this little beautiful bird that's just kept in there. But that's not me. I can be ladylike. I can be that bird, but flying out of that cage. I needed it. And I used to use that analogy with these guys. And I would say, it's really funny how you always want these these girls to be in like a little glass container you know because you want her to be that thing that you just so desire her to be but she's not that thing she's not no matter how hard you try to bring that fire down you know how we talk about fire and water they would throw water at me and my flame would still go and that's when I knew I couldn't be in a relationship or relationships pseudo relationships where I wasn't me and I wasn't accepted and that's why my parents were so instrumental in and my daddy was so instrumental in me in me disconnecting from an engagement because he said to me, well, the minute I walked out and told him I was getting engaged, he said, you are settling. You are only 22, 20 years, 21 years old. 
That is a story that I want you to share because I was blown, by the way, I'm blown away by the fact that you just used the bird and cage analogy because that's exactly the analogy that I use in previous relationships and with previous employers. I would leave relationships and even employers saying, I feel like I need to spread my wings and you've clipped my wings and I won't let you do that to me anymore. No. So there was a pivotal moment in your life where the entire course of your life could have changed, but it just takes that one second, that one moment, that one person that believes in you, that says, no, you're better than that. And that person for you was your father. Tell me about when you were the runaway bride. So we had picked out an engagement ring. We had gone to Gordon's. We had picked it out. It was the most beautiful. It was triangular. I remember that. I forget what the name of the ring was. Anyhow, I was excited. We had just celebrated an infas. We had had a lunch. Et I had been with my high school boyfriend six years. I was graduating from college. I was on the on the on the on my way out. He didn't go to school. He didn't have much of a career. He didn't have much of an intelligence. My dad knew all of that because my dad would say, "Who buys new cars when you don't even have money?" Like he had like clear examples for me. Like you are gonna get married to someone who you're gonna be supporting, who you're gonna be putting up with. So he would go through things. And that day, my daddy was cooking carne asada outside, and I said to him, "Hey, puppy, I'm like, you know, we're, we're that would tell him everything." So I said to him, "You know, I'm getting engaged. You know, today we picked out the ring." And he says to me, "Really?" He goes, "You're 21." You're beautiful. You're educated. You have everything in your life ahead of you. Why are you settling with this person now? Do you not think that you deserve better? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you have everything a a man would want for for, for a woman. And you are settling for, for something just because it's been around forever. You haven't even started living your life. And I'm like, you know what? I haven't started living my life. So I went upstairs to my room, made a phone call and said, hey, I'm breaking this off. You know, you can just have, you know, just get your deposit for the ring because we had to spread the deposit. By the way, he couldn't afford the ring. He was going to be borrowing money. I mean, there was so much bad to it. It wasn't even good. And I said, just keep your money. Like, you don't even have to spend it. Fine. I just don't want to be with you anymore. I think I'm just going to move on. And he would come to my house almost every single day for about a month begging me to come back, begging me. And my dad would run him out. He said, she doesn't want to know anything to do with you. You need to leave her alone. You need to leave her alone. Every day he would say, and he would say to me, go put your, put, go put him in his place. Tell him that you're done and you're good. And I'm glad that I had that support because that's what I needed at the time. I needed that, Ariana. I needed somebody to stand up for me and to tell me, hey, you stand up for yourself. Wow. And I did. And I'm glad that I did because it would have been a huge mistake. It would have been the biggest mistake of my life. Not because I think I'm too good for anybody. It wasn't about that. It was because I knew I was too good for my own self. You were settling down. I was settling. And for me, it was like, wow, am I not taking myself seriously enough? Am I thinking that I'm not good enough for more? Because really settling was just the same old thing that I had grown up with. And I was that bird that had aspirations. I was thinking big. That was like, I'm going to see the world. This guy had no inkling of even going to fucking Mexico with me. <laughs> or like going to like Austin. Things that I wanted to do, things like that. I'm like, Psh, I needed to go. I needed to move. I needed to get out. I needed it so bad. I needed to breathe. I needed it as much as I needed to breathe. Wow. I'm blown away. And, and there's I'm, so many women that need to hear this. 
Yeah, yeah, but I and I also know friends who have gone through situations like that and they didn't listen. So I always tell ladies, young ladies, listen to your parents. I know it sounds like they're dragging things, but they really do have the best interest for you. They really do. We don't listen to our parents because we think we know better. I'm glad I listened. I'm glad I took his advice and I took her advice to my mother. So this is part one of when you look like you don't belong. And this has been the part where we've learned from Alicia, her background, how she grew up. And we ended with the one moment that changed the entire course of her life. The entire course of my life was changed in that day. So part two, we're going to dig deeper into what happens after that Mm -hmm. and how her life has completely changed and the message that she wants to share with women. Thanks for tuning in to the Stay Naked podcast. This is Ayanna and Alicia. Stay Mm -hmm. naked, y'all. Love you. Stay naked. Hey, everyone. If you like what you hear, we have more coming up. Don't miss it. Stay tuned.